As always, Lord, you wrote it. We pray that you would teach it and give us ears to hear. Not just to hear it, Lord, but to really apply it to our lives and go out there and be a light and a witness in all we do and say and to be a difference maker for eternity, Lord. Thank you for this. Thank you for this time to meet here freely and openly and just hopefully praise you and learn of you and grow deeper in you. In your name, amen. Acts chapter 9. We are fully introduced today to Saul who later on becomes named as Paul. Now, we were first introduced to him back in Acts chapter 7, and there are some references to him in Acts chapter 8, but here in Acts chapter 9 is Paul's testimony of when he gets saved. Now, it gets a little confusing because we will use the word Saul and we will use the word Paul. Saul is what he's going by right now. In a few chapters, he gets a name changed to Paul. So let's just talk about that right at the beginning. The word Saul means desired. The word Paul means little. So put this in perspective. Jesus wanted Saul. He desired him. And so you see in Acts chapter 9, Paul is a very unique man who was led to the Lord by the Lord himself. So if you want to say, hey, who led you to the Lord? Well, Paul said, well, Jesus himself led me to Jesus. So with that being said, you see his name meaning desired. And then his name Paul means little because when he gets saved, he's humbled. He's humbled into this little man, and it's not in the sense of an insult, but it's a humbling of his life to really follow Jesus Christ. So remember, he is desired, and then he becomes little, humbled in the Lord, which is a good thing. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Acts 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. There's some pretty strong wording here at the beginning, depending on your translation in verse 1. Saul, breathing threats. Some of your translations say slaughter, saying murder. One translation says eager to kill the Lord's followers. This man had a hatred of Christianity, a hatred of Christianity. And he desired to go out and see it destroyed. When Paul was giving his testimony in Acts chapter 26, he says this, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And that's what he's doing right here. He's going all the way to Damascus. If you look at the back of a map, Damascus is 100 plus miles away from Jerusalem. It's a good week's journey 2,000 years ago. He hated Christians so much, he's asking for permission to travel a week's distance, go 100 plus miles, to say, can I just round up as many as I can to bring them back to Jerusalem, to hopefully be forced to blaspheme God's name, and if not, let's put them to death. This man hated Christianity without a shadow of a doubt. And that's what makes it amazing that when he gets saved. He says in Galatians this, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That's what he wanted to do, is destroy the church. And this guy gets saved. So we have to stop right here and say this. You all know a Paul in your life that you almost have convinced yourself that they're past the point of coming to know Christ. And I just want to let you know God's grace is so amazing. And who it can touch and how it can touch them. And we need to pray for their eyes to be opened, for the blinds to be lifted. For this guy to come to know Christ, I cannot overemphasize this enough this morning. If Paul can be saved, anybody can be saved. And think this through. How much this man hated the church? How many widows did he make? How many orphans did he make? I mean, imagine years ago, if we would have come to you and said, Hey, did you hear the news? Saddam Hussein got saved. We wouldn't believe it. 
few years ago, if we would have come to you and said, guess what, Osama bin Laden accepted Jesus Christ. He's going to be on the 700 Club tomorrow. We would not believe that or accept that in any way. We would not. Those people who tried to destroy. This is what Paul is doing. Traveling a week's distance, hundreds of miles, to just go destroy people and Christianity. So we set the tone with that. A couple quick things here before we move on. Take a look at the way there in verse 2. So that if he found any who were of the way. That comes from John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Everybody is searching for direction in life. Everybody is. Jesus is the way. Well, he's the way to what? He's the way to everything. (laughs) He's the only way that matters. He is the only way of salvation. He is the only way to eternity, eternal life. He's the only way that matters. So when you run into somebody and you can tell they're just kind of bumbling and stumbling and fumbling through life, they need the way and they need Jesus Christ. What happens now, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell on the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is where we get that phrase, that you saw the light. Paul literally saw the light. And that light, it was Jesus Christ. So imagine, he, he's, he's got this mindset. He's going to Damascus. And if you've ever been in an anger rage before, you know how it works. When we talk about having a fantasy life, most of the time we're talking inappropriate fantasies of the flesh. There's anger fantasies. Have you ever been in an anger fantasy where you're just so angry at somebody, you're so upset at them, and you constantly just keep replaying the conversation in your head, and then they're going to say this, and then I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to do this. I just imagine Paul on the way to Damascus full of so much hate and anger for days. He's just constantly telling his companions, now when we get there, we're going to go do this and this. Then all of a sudden, there's a light, verse 3, knocks him to the ground. And then a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Note the double name, Saul, Saul. Jesus uses this a lot. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled over many things. This would be the equivalent of us using our full names for our children. Elias Benjamin. You know what I mean? There's a problem here. So Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's not persecuting Christ, but he is. See, when we hurt, Jesus hurts. Never forget this simple point. Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So therefore, if I am struggling... If I'm going through something difficult, be it physically, emotionally, spiritually, Christ is there as the sympathetic high priest, the Bible says, that is there with me. In fact, he says in chapter 10 of Luke, he says, when they reject you, when they persecute you, they're really rejecting me and persecuting me. In this world, there will be a day, there will be a moment, there will be a season where nobody gets you. They will not. You will try to explain your physical pain to them, and they'll nod along, and they will pray, and they'll say they're sorry, and you'll walk away from that conversation saying, you don't get it. You will try to explain your emotional struggles and how heartbroken you are, and they'll say, oh, I hear you, I'm sorry. And you're like, yeah, you don't get it. You'll try to explain your spiritual struggles, and they don't get it. And that's when Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, but, but I get it. I get it. I, I, I struggled physically on the cross. I struggled spiritually in the garden. I struggled emotionally being rejected. And so therefore, I hurt when you hurt. So Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
me. Now we have two questions that are asked. First one, verse 5, who are you, Lord? And verse 6, what do you want me to do? Those are the only two questions that matter in life. Think about that. Those are the only two questions that matter in life. We got, just got done with graduation season, you know, a few months ago, graduation parties. And what are you going to do with your life? What do you think you're going to do? And we think it's these huge, deep decisions. No, there's only two questions that matter. First off, who are you, Lord? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? And then number two, once you know who Christ is, verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are the only two questions that matter. Do not complicate life. Do I know Christ? And then what am I supposed to do with that knowledge of who Jesus is? Now, some of your Bibles, and it always is kind of difficult to go through this because I'm reading under New King James, and some of your Bibles may not have the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6 there. And that's a translation issue. And if you ever want to talk about that one-on-one, I can sit down with you and go through the different translations, who has what and why they have it. But these verses are also mentioned later on again, too. In Acts 22, there is the question when Paul gives his testimony where he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in Acts 26, he mentions about how it's hard to kick against the goats. So those references are in there, just in different accounts as well too but those two questions are all that matters who are you lord and what do you want me to do now what are we going to do with this information first thing is you got to know who jesus christ is who are you lord now most of you here know who he is we're not atheists here probably for the most part now you may not know all the details of his life but you i hope understand there's a heaven and there's a hell and jesus christ is the only way to get into heaven So we know who he is. We know that he's our savior. Now the question is, do we accept that? And once we accept that, we're going to make him Lord of what we all do. What do you want me to do? I tell you this, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I am am going to be straightforward. I see it in my life. I see it in other people's lives. We come to know who Jesus is. We love that idea. He's my savior. I have salvation. I have freedom from death. I have eternity waiting me in heaven. Book of Revelation says there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more anything. Amen. I rejoice in that. So I want the Savior part of who are you. But what do you want me to do, the Lord part? No, I got this taken care of. I'm pretty good on this. I know the direction I want to go in life. I know what I want to do in life. I know what I want to accomplish in life. I know where I want to live. I know where I want to go to school. I know that I don't want to go to school. I know that I want to get married. I know I don't want to get married. We know what we want. We never once stop and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if we do say, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's usually a very light, Lord, what do you want me to do? Like, God, I'm giving you two options. What do you want me to do? I mean, I have learned with my kids at home, especially when we have a house full with, with extra foster kids, etc. You never go up to the kids and say, what do you want to eat? That will never go well. I will let them think they have a choice. I will offer you carrots or peas. Now, what would you like? I'm letting you choose right here, right now. And they say, Dad, what do you want? I want neither. I'm 40. I don't have to eat carrots or peas. I don't have to. I, have, I got married in 19, and 21 years ago, I quit eating carrots and peas. So I don't have to do it anymore. But you're not. So, so often in life, we do that to the Lord. Lord, I'm yours. I will serve you in any way you want. I will go anywhere you want. So, Lord, I'm thinking southern climate. Lord, I'm thinking a strong, powerful husband that will provide, or a good, godly woman. Lord, I'm thinking 2.4 kids. You know what I mean? We have it. 
And all of a sudden, we just don't stop and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And when I say that, Lord, I really mean it. I'm laying it all out for you. I'm literally giving you every aspect of my life and everything I do and everything I say. And that may mean moving, career changes, life changes. We try so hard in this world to make our little nest as comfortable as we possibly can. And then we just hope and pray the Lord never moves us out of that comfortability. Where really I see right here Paul saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? We're going to build on that as we go, this obedience. So what does he want him to do? Verse 6, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. That's all? Jesus should show up. He knocked me off my horse. I'm on the ground. Says here a little bit later in verse 9, I can't see. I saw the light. You're literally talking to me. And the only thing you're going to tell me is go into the city and I'll tell you more later. If you're the type of personality that cannot handle that, guess what the Lord's constantly going to do? He's never going to reveal to you step two, three, four, five, or six. He will only reveal to you step one. Because he's asking you, can you be obedient without knowing all the details? See, we want to have control. And the Lord is saying, you just trust me on step one. And once you complete step one, I'll reveal to you step two. And I'll reveal to you step three. So, Paul, your first... Your first request of obedience as a new believer in the Lord is just go into the city and wait, and I'll tell you what you should do. Man, we're still learning that lesson sometimes. So what happens? He goes in, and he can't see. He saw no one, verse 8. They lead him by the hand, verse 90, three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Is this amazing? This is the town he was going to. A week's journey, 100 plus miles, and his job was to collect as many Christians as he possibly can, bring them back, force them to give up on Jesus Christ or kill them. And now here he is being led by the hand into the same city, blinded. That's what the Lord does. Why was he blinded? Without sight, verse 9. I only can tell you what's happened in my life. Sometimes when there's so much going on, and I'm so focused on so many different activities, the Lord has to strip me of everything and everyone but Him to remind me all that matters is Him. We talked about this last week with trials and tribulations. What's the point of a wilderness time? What's the point of the desert? You are stripped of everyone and everything to remind you that the only thing you need is Jesus Christ. So for three days, Paul, it's just me and the Lord. Me and the Lord. Not going to eat, not going to drink, I can't see, I have to trust everybody to lead me, and I'm going to think about everything I just went through. I'm going to think about what I just saw, I just talked to Jesus Christ, I'm going to think about the persecutions that I've done, I'm going to think about the changed life, I'm going to think about all this type of stuff. Verse 16 of the same chapter seems to hint that the Lord was really speaking to Paul this time. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. We live in a world today where everything is so interconnected. If you leave home and you forget your phone, you you almost can't handle it. I mean, what happens if something major happens and I don't know about it? I mean, what happens if somebody contacts me and I I don't get it? And we have to check updates on Facebook and social media. Our whole world revolves around this concept of always being interconnected with people and this constant idea of checking things, etc. It it just absolutely amazes me. I mean, I see it a lot at church. I see it in everything. We're constantly on our phones. We're constantly looking at stuff. That's the world we live in. But yet then we got this really weird thing. In Christianity, I'm supposed to be like Jesus. Okay? So now let's think about this for a second. I just read a great devotional realize recently when they were talking about Christ, and they said this. They said, do you realize all the accusations they made against Jesus? They called him a drunk. They called him a glutton. They questioned his parentage. They said he was possessed 
by Satan. But one thing they never accused Jesus of, you know what that was? Of being busy. Look throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always sitting, eating, taking naps, and just chilling out. Now, I may not say chilling out in the King James. I don't know. But that's what he's always doing. He always is. They're in a boat, and Jesus is up on a pillow taking a nap. He's had a long journey. He's sitting by the well saying, hey, can somebody get me to drink? He rises from the dead, so he makes breakfast. Think about this. He has never been accused of being busy, but yet we almost pride ourselves on this, on this silly numerical, how many friends we have, how many likes we have, how many followers we have, and we pride ourselves in how busy we are, where Jesus is like, I- I'm not going to do that. I'm reading through the book of Luke right now for devotions. Jesus is consistently and constantly getting away from people, purposely. It says in the book of Luke, one reference that he rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness where no one could find him. His disciples had to track him down and said, the crowds are looking for you. That's your Savior and Messiah that would rather be out in the wilderness praying with God the Father than healing people because he knew the importance of being with the Lord. There's another reference, too, where the crowds got too big. He just left. They said the crowds were thronging around him, and Jesus leaves to the wilderness. Before he gets his 12 apostles, the Bible says he spent all night in prayer. He didn't look over resumes. He didn't have interviews with them. He said, I'm just going to go seek the Lord on this. Jesus is constantly setting this example of separating ourselves from the world and making time to be with the Lord. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. What was going on in Paul's life for those three days? He was pretty still for those three days. You've heard me teach on this before. I'm just going to do a quick little overview of a reminder to you. Just in your mind, envision the temple or the tabernacle. Just envision that. And as, as you're coming into the temple and the tabernacle, you have the uh, laver to wash your hands. You have the altar for sacrifice. It'd be constant activity. Animals being killed left and right. People lining up to do this. Ceremonial washings and cleaning. It would smell like a barbecue. It was just constant activity. Now you actually go into the temple or the tabernacle and you're in the first room. There's only a few things in there. There's table showbread, there's the menorah that's lit, and then there's the altar of incense, so it smells wonderful. A priest only goes in there two times a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And then there's a whole other area of the temple, tabernacle, where the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. One priest goes in there one time a year. We like to spend our times in the outer court. Constant activity, constant fun. Look at our bulletin. Look how much we're doing. Let's do this and this. Where did Jesus ask us to go? To the Holy of Holies. Just him. Just the quiet. Now you may stop and say, how am I supposed to do that? There's so much activity. There's so much this. I know there's a lot of activity. I get it. We make time for it. Psalm 5, verse 3. Early in the morning, Lord, I will rise and you will hear my voice. I just want to encourage you. Be still. Know that he's God. If you're a follower of Jesus, he set the example. Separate from the world. Go to the wilderness for a while. Go into the desert for a while and just spend time with the Lord. Careful how busy you make yourself because they never accuse Jesus of being busy. Never. Hey, my daughter's dying. Sounds good. I'll head over. I got time. And on the way, I'll just heal people on the way. This is what Jesus did. What did Paul do for three days? He was with the Lord. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. 
Now, this is not the Ananias that we've learned about earlier that was the high priest. This is a very unique character in the Bible, only mentioned here. And look at his description. Verse 10, a certain disciple. He is not a prophet. He's not an apostle. He's not an evangelist. He's just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday disciple. I love that. God wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This is not some super special man. This is a man that was obedient. He was obedient to do this. The Lord says, Ananias, and he says, here I am, Lord. I'm willing. Now, note what Paul was asked to do in verse 8. Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Given no details, Paul, in faith, trust me. Ananias, I'm giving you the street, I'm giving you the address, I'm giving you the house, and I'm telling you exactly what to do. Why? Because Ananias already had the faith to go do it. Do you ever get jealous sometimes of these believers? They come to you and it's like, I've really been praying about something. And the Lord has laid on my heart, I'm supposed to do this, 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 and this. And you're like, I I can barely get through the morning. How do you know this deep thing? Maybe because they already have that obedience of saying, Lord, whatever you call me to do, I'm willing to do. God doesn't have to fight them. He doesn't have to push them. See, jump back, if you will, real quick to verse 5. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. How often are we kicking against the goads? What's a goad? A goad is either a metal stick, excuse me, a stick with a little piece of metal at the end, or sometimes they had a little uh, pricks of metal at the end of their boot. And what would happen is that the animal was not working hard enough, going in the right direction or moving fast enough, you'd prick them. You'd poke them. And guess what that animal would learn to do? I'd go the right direction. I start heading to the left, I get poked. Okay, I should probably go to the right. I'm not moving quick enough. I get poked, I should probably pick up the pace. What happens is some of us are constantly being poked and we're not learning the lesson. And we wonder why the Christian walk is so utterly miserable. Where's this joy and peace that you keep talking about? The joy and peace is when you're in God's will, when I've stopped and said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that way I don't have to kick against the goads. See, God was working on Paul's life. John 16, verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I truly believe that on this journey, the Lord was already working on Paul's life. And I believe this. If you know somebody who is almost downright antagonistic to the gospel, I bet you the Holy Spirit is working on them more than you could ever realize. Because anytime you bring up Jesus, it makes them angry. I have noticed that when I go share my faith with somebody, the more angry the person is, the more they want to talk about the Bible. The more lukewarm or apathetic the person is, they don't want to have a conversation. But if they're angry, I've had this happen to me before. I was just actually going through, I texted somebody recently, and I was going back and looking at some of the texts that we sent each other, and and this person at one time was a little antagonistic to the gospel. So I contacted them and said, hey, you know, praying for you, what can I do? And they basically said, nothing. I said, okay, if you ever need anything, let me know. Okay, fine. A few minutes later, hey, I do got a question for you. This is all via text. How can a God of love, and just boom. It's like for somebody who's so against the gospel, so against Christianity, given up on their faith, you sure want to talk about it a lot. That's the Paul, kicking against the goats. I just encourage you, if you've got someone you're sharing Christ with and they constantly keep fighting back, it means the Holy Spirit's working on their heart. Amen. That's what he's doing in Paul's life. But back to Ananias, he could have all the details because here I am, Lord. What happens next? Verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. Can you go with me to Isaiah chapter 6, please? Remember the two questions that we're working on. Paul asked two questions to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? The first question, who are you, Lord, is the most important question you could ever ask in life. Who is Jesus Christ, and do I know him as my Lord and Savior? The next question, what do you want me to do, Lord? That's the one you have to willfully choose to do. You have to choose to stop and say, Lord, it's no longer my life, but your life, and I am laying absolutely everything down. When God called Ananias, Ananias said, here I am, Lord. Gave Ananias, I think, a very difficult job. You read in the passages there with me, Ananias said, Lord, are you sure? This is the guy. He's collecting people. He's killing people. Are you sure? But the Bible says Ananias went. Take a look here at Isaiah chapter 6. This is where Isaiah the prophet is called. Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And he prophesied during a very difficult time. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord standing on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Stop right there. What's the purpose of those first four verses? To show you the holiness of God. Verse 1, I saw the Lord on his throne in heaven, high and lifted up. Verse 2, I see the angelic beings, the seraphim, I see them. Verse 3, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, the house is filled with smoke. A lot of people think that's a reference to what's called the Shekinah glory. God used smoke as a picture of his presence in the Old Testament. The holy of holies would be filled with smoke. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, it was filled with smoke. The first four verses are supposed to show you God's holiness, his perfection. The only response to seeing how holy and perfect God is, is verse 5. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You realize you're a sinner, you realize God is perfect, you are not. This is Paul saying, who are you, Lord? I need a Savior. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And behold, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. You're now saved. The altar, the altar of sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ has saved you. Isaiah has been made clean from the altar. It's a picture of Jesus here. So this is where we stop, though. I got saved. Verse 7, my sin is taken away. My sin is purged. Amen. Just like Paul, who are you, Lord? Just like Jesus to Ananias. Ananias, here I am. But now there's a whole other level. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And then I said, send someone else. Right? That's what we do. No, then I said, here I am, send me. I just want to ask you guys right now, these are the two most important questions I could ask you. First off, do you know who Jesus Christ is? I mean, do you really honestly understand? I'm not talking about him as some historical figure. I'm really asking, do you understand the eternity of heaven, the eternity of hell? You will live on forever. There's no doubt about that. God truly does exist. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that gains you entrance into heaven. 
God is holy. God is perfect. Only holy and perfect can abode with God. Jesus was holy and perfect, and he came down to us and took us who were a mess. Then through his death said, my death will cover their sin and make them holy and perfect. So now we have entrance into heaven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is Isaiah saying, I am a man of unclean lips, and I have now been touched. Now, you get that. Amen. That does not mean now it's a green light just to say, oh, good, I'm saved. I wonder what I want to do now. No. See, now there's a whole other level. The Bible uses a term called a bondservant, where you've willfully given your life over to the Lord, and you say, it's not my life anymore. There's something called being a steward where you realize everything you own, you, you really don't own. It's the Lord's. And so I'm just supposed to be a good manager of it. There's this idea of now saying, what do you want me to do? See, verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And I'm just asking you, have you said that yet? Have you said, Lord, I have let go of any claims on my life of what I think will bring me joy, what I think will bring me peace, what I think will bring me happiness, what will make me comfortable, and this is my dreams, this is what I've always wanted to do. Have you let go of all that? And just said, here I am, send me. Because when that fully happens, you'll start to really experience what it means. Until that point, you're just kicking against the goads. You're constantly being pricked and poked, and you're wondering where's this joy and peace, and you're like, no, because I'm not in God's perfect will. Paul, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Ananias, here I am, Lord, and I went. Isaiah, here I am, send me. Are we willing to do that? Jump back now to Acts chapter 9, please. Look at the mission that Paul has in verse 15. Go. He is a chosen vessel of mine. Chosen. On your days of darkness, discouragement, and depression, please remember you are chosen by the Lord. He wants you. Here's just a couple quick verses on that. Jesus in John 15. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You've been chosen. Same chapter, Jesus, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world... I chose you out of the world. Ephesians 1. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen before the foundation of the world by the Lord. God wanted you. Isn't that amazing when you stop and you think about it? So before the foundation of the world, the Lord wanted you. And yet we fight that. And we wonder why there's no peace or joy in our life. And as some of you may be thinking, you don't know what the Lord's asking me to do, the sacrifice that it is. And you're right, I don't know the details, but I know this. He'll give you the strength to do it. And when you finally submit to it, oh, man, it's a freedom that you can't imagine. Verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house. Ananias obeyed, he went. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Okay, rewind four days. A Christian comes up to Saul and touches him. What would Saul have done? Four days earlier, what would Saul have done if a Christian touched him? Four days earlier, what would Saul have done if somebody would have said, Brother, obviously Ananias was Baptist. Brother, I'm not picking on the Baptists because they don't have a sense of humor. But so, Brother Saul, I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. I don't know, maybe there's some Baptists. I'm just kidding. This is why we shouldn't record the 10 o'clock. Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I just, just, I can't let this image go. Here is a blinded Saul that has not eaten or drank for three days. Literally saw the light, led by the hand into Damascus, the town that he was going to collect people and beat them and possibly kill them. Now has this guy come and put his hand on him and says, Brother Saul. Oh, man, that's the gospel. That's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Wouldn't you like to be part of that verse 19, little prayer meeting? Hey, I'm Saul. You know, uh, three days ago I was on the way to kill you. And uh, now I'm here to worship with you. That's what, that's what the Lord does. I mean, that's why the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul struggled with this. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I have to put my past behind me. And I have to press forward towards the goal of Christ Jesus. As I've mentioned to you many times, and even in this lesson, how many times did Satan whisper in Paul's ear every time that he spread the gospel? How many orphans did you make and how many widows did you make? Paul had to put that behind and move forward in Christ Jesus. Every one of you came in here today and you have a past. But you have a testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for you. See, Paul recounts his testimony in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And it's amazing. We get to go through this two more times in the Bible. This is how important this testimony is. What a wonderful testimony it is. Now, here's the problem with testimonies. We like testimonies with all the gory details, right? If we get up and say, hey, I'm going to share with you my testimony. I was uh, born into a Christian home. Raised by Christian parents who loved the Lord and really lived it out. Age five, I really started to understand what Jesus Christ did for me. And at that time, I accepted him. By age seven, I really understood what baptism was. And uh, I got baptized. And ever since that day, I've been living for Jesus Christ with everything I have. Um, you know, I married a godly person. We're raising a godly family. And just the Lord's grace has been on me. We'd sit there and say, that's like the most boring testimony of all time. You didn't kill anybody? I mean, seriously, there's nothing, nothing at all? It's because what we like is we like the gory testimonies. We want a testimony that's 90% your past life. Oh, tell me every wrong thing you did. Go into all the details. Then 5% of how you met Jesus. Then 5% of let me glorify myself. And really, the test, every testimony is the same. You were on the path to hell. You met Jesus, and now you're on the path to heaven. Every testimony is the same. Just be careful that we never exploit the past. Now, I know some of your testimonies, and it is amazing. And at the right time, at the right purpose, and to the right person, you should open up and say, no, I don't think you understand. You see me walk in. You see me with my wife. You see me with my kids. Yeah, you, you don't know. You're assuming this is the way it's always been. You don't understand that God gave us beauty for ashes. You don't understand that God restored to us the years the locusts took. You don't understand. And let me sit down with you sometime and tell you about that. And to God be the glory. But we just got to be careful that we stop and realize your testimony is powerful. You are on the path to hell. You met Jesus, and now you're on the path to heaven. Why would we want to tell people about that? Two questions. Who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? So what I want to do is this, as we get ready to close here. We're going to get into Paul's life here next week. I want to focus on those two questions first off. First one, 
Who are you, Lord? As we've already explained the gospel message, when the worship team comes up here in a little bit, what I want to finish with is this. I want to finish with a time of prayer where we can just be available to pray with you. And what I want to do is I want to make sure you understand that first question first. Who are you, Lord? Do you truly understand who Jesus Christ is? And do you truly understand what it means to be born again and saved? Born again, a brand new person. Brand new, just like you were birthed a second time. Born again, new creation in the Lord. The other one is, and I think this is the one that's going to probably affect a lot of you. Have you ever truly said to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, have you really ever asked that? Lord, I am literally laying my whole life in front of you. Everything. Houses, family, careers, interests, hobbies, everything. Lord, what do you want me to do? And then step back and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Is there something that the Lord has laid on your heart that you know you should be doing that you're not? Is there something the Lord has laid on your heart that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. And we want to be a body of Christ that does that. I'm telling you right now, in my 24 years that I've walked with the Lord, getting saved, i got to be careful how I say this, getting saved was the easy part. Jesus did all the work. He says it's finished on the cross. The harder part has been dying to myself every day, saying, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. And I just encourage you, if you're in that battle of, I know the Lord wants more for me, but I'm hanging on to my comfortability that I've created over these decades of my life, maybe it's time to let that go and see if the Lord has in store. Worship team, if you can come forward here for the final song. Shannon, would you come up and pray with me up here? Shannon and I are going to be up here praying. If during this song, guy or gal, if you've got anything you want to pray about, I encourage you to come up. Maybe it's the question of who are you, Lord? Maybe it's the question of, Lord, what do you want me to do? What song are we closing with again, Mark? He's more than enough. Great song to close with. Great words there. More than enough. Whatever you think he can't handle is more than enough. During the song, if you want to come up and pray, Shannon and I will be sitting right over there, and we'll be willing to pray for you. Once the song is done, we'll be willing to pray with you. Come on up if you have anything you want to pray about. If there's other people praying, you know, Shannon will probably pray with the women. I'll probably pray with the guys. Uh, If I'm busy praying with some, actually, no matter what, Marv, you just close us out with prayer, okay? Let your heart be open. And I can just let me read this to you one more time. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Open your heart up to that and see what God has in store. Give it over to the worship team for the final song.